Hello, everyone, and welcome to this webinar today. I'm Frances Seeley from Global Net 21 and a local group as well called Enfield Voices. And this is one of the many webinars we do. Today, we're going to look at climate change, but through the focus of a, a Green New Deal, or what is called a Green New Deal, um, which is something which has been developed in this country and also adopted in a different way in the United States. And often it's looked at as a sort of national or global deal that needs to be reached. But it also has implications for localities, for communities and for local authorities. And that's what we want to look at today. What is an, a Green New Deal? and how can it be applied locally in our communities, in our local areas. And we've got Richard Murphy with us today, who was involved originally in developing the idea of the Green New Deal. And he's going to talk to us about it. He's a professor at City University. He's an expert on tax. Don't let that put you off, but he's an expert on tax. And he's going to talk to us today. So thank you for joining us, Richard. And it's great to have, have you here. So could you start just telling us very briefly something about yourself? Ooh, well, look, how did I end up here is a question I often ask because I'm a chartered accountant and I'm an economist and that in itself is an unusual combination. Those two um, professions rarely overlap. Um, I also, as a teenager, became aware that we were going to face a climate crisis by chance, um, partly because my father um, was involved in uh, the electricity industry and ex exporting power, literally, through power lines out of Sizewell, and because I became aware because I read some odd material that said one day we're going to run out of some resources and that's going to have to change the way we live. So I began reading things as a teenager on the coming climate crisis, was interested in it, um, in it as an undergraduate, discovered economics didn't address the issue at all, thought about doing a PhD, became a chartered accountant, but returned to campaigning 20 odd years ago. And one of the things I've worked on ever since has been issues around the Green New Deal, which formulated into something of that name in 2008. And, and tell us how that came about, because you worked with Caroline Lucas and Anne Pettifer and, and that group of quite eminent people. How did that come about? How did that start? Oh, the person who's responsible in a very real way for the Green New Deal is Colin Hines. Colin Hines is an environmentalist, but he worked for Greenpeace as an economist, although I think he would say the environmental side of his work is probably the stronger bit of it. I don't think I'm maligning Colin there. Um, Colin knows more people, I think, than anybody else on earth, or certainly around the green issue. I mean, he has the most amazing list of contacts. We began working together having met in 2002 and were inter interested actually in local dimensions of this issue from then. He knew everybody who came together to become the Green New Deal. He's been the coordinator of the Green New Deal group ever since. So he pulled together what was officially eight people, but has been a fairly flexible bunch ever since. So Caroline Lucas and Anne Pettifor are in it. I'm in it. Um, Jeremy Leggett, who's founded Solar Century, is an expert in peak oil and other related things, is a member. Larry Elliott, the... Um, economics editor of The Guardian is a member, Andrew Sims, um, ex-New Economics Foundation, and a couple of, form, couple of former chief executives of Friends of the Earth. Um, so you know, there's been a lot of people come and gone, but the core group is still present and we make up the Green New Deal. Okay, so we're talking about the Green New Deal and we're assuming people know what that is. Uh, and for those who don't, if you could tell it briefly, because you could talk for the whole uh, webinar on this, what do you mean by a Green New Deal? 
Well, the Green New Deal idea has developed a little bit since we first developed it. Um, we were obviously writing in 2007-8, and we realised that there was a coming economic crisis at that time. There was no doubt there was. We were certain that debt was a major issue and that it was going to bank debt, that is, not government debt. We've never been worried about that. Bank debt was going to topple the banks and the government was going to have to intervene. And at the same time, we saw two other things. One was, if you like, a fuel crisis. It was peak oil but of course that was linked to the climate crisis so we made a practical dimension of it then which we've not focused on so much since and a food crisis which we linked to the biodiversity crisis so again we made those triple issues the basis of the first green new deal and what we talked about and we've updated this idea over successive reports and there have been more than one a year ever since is how we need to change our approach to economics, the economy, the funding of government to facilitate this whole arrangement of delivering this Green New Deal, this way of changing the economy to be sustainable so that we can live within our means, but still enjoy a good lifestyle. Yeah, I mean, obviously, as I said earlier, it applies globally, and I, and I know that in the United States this has been taken on slightly differently because they don't concentrate on the, the debt issue that you do as much as, as we do in the UK. Um, but it is also something that can be applied locally, isn't it, in, in local communities. You can adopt some of the principles, if you like, of a green Green New Deal there. How important is it that when local authorities, for example, are adopting a climate strategy, they should look at a Green New Deal? Well, I think this is very important. Um, I've done perhaps more thinking around that with Colin than most have. Um, the focus generally has been, of course, it's a single planet and a single climate crisis, and therefore the numbers and the thinking tends to be big. But Actually, let's go back to the beginnings of the green movement. And I've been around um, you know, the New Economics Foundation, for example, since the early 1980s. I was its first accountant. Um, and think about what actually is happening. And frequently, the green movement has focused on local and the bottom-up approach towards uh, change. And I think there is genuinely a case for local authorities to think about what they can do in this area. Now, of course, many local authorities are declaring a climate emergency and they're right to. But how does that translate into action? That's often a question which I'm involved with when I'm talking to local authorities. I mean, for example, I'm also involved in the fair tax mark and they declare that they want to be fair tax and don't know how to do it. Well, always it's action. Local authorities can take real actions. They, their rights are constrained by government at present, but they're not completely eliminated. They can look at and they are allowed to look at their own buying and their procurement is allowed to take environmental issues into consideration. We still live under EU procurement law. It's not straightforward. It's not easy to get round lowest price equals best value, but it is possible and environment is one of the opt outs. But there's also simple priorities. There are local transport issues which local governments can influence. Yeah, it is really important that local transport be taken into consideration. The bike be taken into consideration. Methods of car parking, how you discourage car parking, how you allow car parking, how you control speeds, even within local communities, have a significant impact about the amount of carbon released. When we talk about local localities, there's also the fact that 
around 25% of all carbon emissions come from homes. And the opportunity for local authorities to get involved in this process of retrofitting housing to make sure that they can become the agent for change so that their communities have enduring, sustainable, sealed, environmentally sound properties is critical. We've seen in the last couple of days report from government saying that the process, its green grant process has collapsed. Now is the time for local authorities to step up and become a partner in that. And that influences something else the way in which education is supplied and the influence that local authorities can have by working with technology and other colleges to deliver the types of training that are required for the skills that we will need to deliver all these new types of job, whether in energy, whether in retrofitting housing, whether in transport or whatever else. Okay, we, you know, you, you mentioned some things there, but let's look at how local authorities approach it. Maybe some of the deficiencies in some of the areas in which they do. I mean, for example, many local authorities have got climate emergency plans and they developed a strategy and they want to get to net zero, but they use that word net. And net is a sort of word of a multitude of sins. No one knows what it means. James Hansen, famous scientist, has called it monkey business very often. And um, very often local authorities will go to net zero by doing a lot of offsetting. Now, is that something they should be, be you know, be aware of, that, that they should really concentrate on the emissions rather than the offsetting. I have some quite big problems with the idea of offsetting because I think there are only a limited number of ways in which offsetting can take place. Now, it is indisputable that there will always be some offsetting. Some activities we're all going to do are going to release carbon in the future. We do therefore need to have activities that don't. But the reality is that the target has to be zero, not net zero. Net zero is actually only possible to be thought about at a government level. And I mean macro, large-scale government here, not micro, local government. And the reason why is that lots and lots of people are claiming, oh, we are going to do offsetting. But they say, we're going to plant trees, we're going to do this or that or the other. But the truth is they haven't got the resources to do that, or they claim there's going to be carbon capture and storage, and that's going to offset emissions. Well, carbon capture and storage doesn't work yet, or they claim they're going to use hydrogen. But most of the hydrogen-relating activity that generating activity is actually energy producing at the moment. So unless there is effectively, in my opinion, an actual plan in place which shows the offset can be delivered within a budget, or there is a license from central government to have access to offset, for example, there is room for your trees to be planted and for the offset to be claimed, then my belief is offset is not part of the process at the moment. All it is is an excuse for not taking real hard action to make the real delivery, which is zero carbon. Okay, and the other problem that local authorities have very often is they engage consultants to develop their plan for them. And their plan as a result is only partial. They don't have a biodiversity strategy, a climate justice strategy, an adaption strategy. How important is it they have all of this in their strategy? It's a holistic strategy. Uh, well, I think the answer is yes, it is important. I mean, even the biodiversity strategy, and I picked that one up because biodiversity tends to be forgotten. I mean, I've lived in 
in a London. I now live in a pretty rural area. Um, I was brought up in a rural area, but I had over 20 years in London. So I know what it's like to live in a pretty intensive urban environment. But I also know that even inside those types of environment, there is significant opportunity for biodiversity and a lot of that under the control of and management of local authorities. Green space management is down to local authority. The provision of more than green space, but green growing space and green nature space is also very largely down to local authorities. And so to simply focus upon some of those hardcore issues like emissions is not enough. This issue is a multifaceted one and those things have to be there. I mean, I'm not going to completely knock consultants, not all the skills that are required to facilitate this process are available inside local authorities as yet. But the choice of consultant is critical here. One of the things that worries me is that we are seeing some of the very conventional, rather normal consultancies, uh, firms of accountancy, um, stepping forward and claiming they have the expertise to offer these types of services. And I will be honest and say, I'm not quite sure that they really have in very many cases. Let's be blunt, my own skills in this area come from the financing dimension. I've never claimed to be an environmentalist. I'm aware of some of the issues, but I would never tell somebody how they could become environmentally net carbon neutral because that's not my skill. I can account for the consequences of it. So I do think they have to be really very environmentally aware in their whole approach to the choice of a consultant. I do believe that there is a need for the development of still further and new environmental consultancy that does think about the broader issues, but including the real impact on local communities and the micro economies that councils are responsible for. What surprises me with some local authorities is they don't include the idea of climate justice in their strategy. Um, I mean, maybe it's an omission they didn't mean to, they didn't understand that they should, but how important is it that they should? And how can they do that at a local level? I know you talk about sustainable equality. Um, how do they go about achieving that? Climate justice is quite a significant and important issue. And it is at almost every level when we talk about these issues. I get very worried by some of the proposals that I see made, uh, for example, oh, we can solve everything with a carbon tax. But you do realise that carbon taxes are largely going to be paid by those who consume most of their income. And that is those on lowest income. You do realise that those who suffer most of the injustice of poor housing, where there are massive costs of carbon emission are those on the lowest incomes and in the most insecure tenancies. You do realise therefore that there actually is a very clear social dimension to this whole process and access to food and sustainable food is actually something which is also a part of a programme which requires an adjustment to make sure that those products are available at prices that people can afford and far too often that is not the case. So it is absolutely critical that these dimensions need to be taken into consideration. Now not just as compensations but also as proactive policies. So for example one of the things that I've long been certain about is that the whole process of local Green New Deals are about delivering new local jobs. Colin Hines and I talk about the need to deliver jobs in every constituency of the UK. We don't know of any plan that there is apart from green transformation which could actually literally and have to deliver jobs in itself in every uh, economy, every constituency of the UK, every local authority, because what that means is that 
if you are going to transform a house, you've got to have somebody at the house. Therefore, there has to be a local job. So the conditions that attach to those jobs are also very important. The idea which the government has implicit in many of its programmes that the cheapest outsourced supplier can do the job at the lowest bucksy rate is not acceptable. We have to have plans for long-term training, employment, sustainable living wages, and union representation in these jobs as well. As someone has just said on, on, on the webinar, the problem is that local authorities need affordable capital. In areas like housing and transport, for example, what can they do without the finance behind them to be able to do it effectively? Well, the first thing that local authorities need to do is actually gang up on the government um, and actually act in a unified fashion. Now, I'm not saying some of them don't. Um, there clearly are local authority organisations who work together, but there is a certain degree of partisanship in this. And it would be welcome if there was less partisanship in this, because this is a universal problem which crosses party divides. And whether you have literally anything from a green local authority to a Tory local authority with Labour and Liberal Democrat and others independent in between, you've got the same issue. One of the most bizarre decisions that the government made in the last couple of years was to increase the rate, the borrowing cost to local authorities from central government. They put it up by a percentage point, literally doubled it effectively overnight to make it more expensive to local authorities to access the capital that they need to be able to do the sorts of work that I'm talking about. And this is crazy. So the alternative is that local authorities need to seriously investigate whether there are other opportunities available to them to raise capital. It is possible for local authorities to borrow. They have to meet something called the Prudential Code, um, which has been set down by the Chartered Institute of Management Accountants. Why it was down to accountants to set what is effectively a government code is a very good question, but I'll leave that aside. The point is they've got to be able to demonstrate that they can take action which will result in the ability to repay. Now, this, I think, has been breached by many local authorities with regard to property borrowing at present. But with regard to the types of thing that the Green New Deal can do, there clearly are paybacks on some activities. For example, insulation is possible if there can be agreements between the property ongoing between its occupants, but the property itself and the local authority for sharing the benefits of securing a more environmentally stable, less emitting property, which reduces energy consumption as a consequence. Now, this takes imagination, but it's possible. And what really I think authorities need to be doing is investing in collectively programs to work out how to deliver this and then literally to raise capital on the back of it to deliver this local transformation. I know that um, some local authorities are doing that. I think a couple are. At least Berkshire is one, I think, that's um, developing community energy through local authority bonds or the development of bonds. Um, is that something that you think is, is possible? I mean, community energy clearly is something that local authorities could get more involved in. And there are now examples of how both social enterprises and local authorities are raising money this way. And do they have to be imaginative to do this? Well, unfortunately, they have to be too imaginative in some ways. I mean, we've seen also the example of, I'm afraid, the failure of the Robin Hood um, energy system in Nottingham. So um, not every one of these schemes is going to succeed. And I'm not quite sure what the reasons for that failure of that one were, but I believe there are questions about management. Um, it is clear that there are some schemes which are easier to implement than others. So some types of generation are relatively straightforward. Um, it is 
not that difficult to actually find a funding mechanism for a turbine arrangement. Combined heat and gas, um, you know, uh, local um, power, combined heat and power um, supplies locally are harder because they require much more local authority involvement. So I'm, local authority bonds are, for me, one of the solutions I've been looking at since 2003. It is, in fact, the first thing that Colin Hines and I ever worked on. We still talk about it. We still believe it's necessary because I believe that we need to actually direct, and this is part of the revitalization of local authorities in its own right, the ability for borrowers, sorry, the ability of savers to invest in their local community. That's why I see these bond schemes as vital. One of the consequences of the government's deficits is that it has been injecting vast amounts of money into the economy. It is inevitable that as a result, the amount of saving in the economy has risen. When the government borrows, somebody else must save. It is a simple fact of double entry bookkeeping. And that saving is very largely by a very small part of the overall community in this country. The wealthy, by definition, have most of that saving. What I want them to do is rejoin the connection between saving and investment by offering them the opportunity to put their savings cash-based effectively into local authorities, into local bonds, to fund the Green New Deal. The interest rate that they need to be offered is only a percentage point or so. Most people will queue up to get 1% on their savings right now, offer a, a government guarantee to back this up, make them the only thing available in ISIS, and the money would pour in to provide the answer to this. That to me is the solution uh, with regard to local authority bonds, not the esoteric ones they have to use at present, which aren't even allowed to be included in ISIS, which is absurd um, when some bizarre things are allowed to be included. Make it something that reconnects the person with their community, pays a fair rate of interest and lets them see that literally the money they've saved is now big logo on side a building, on side a project, whatever else, funding, creativity, jobs, and sustainability where they live. I mean, we'll be doing a webinar in a couple of two or three weeks time on uh, modern monetary theory as well, which helps to look at how we can maybe finance things in a way we thought we could not. Um, let's, I mean, the other thing about local communities is there are a lot of cooperatives and CICs and social enterprises, and many of them are getting involved in this in retrofitting and solar power and community energy and much more. Is it important, I think Plymouth is a good example of this, for local authorities to work actively with these new forms of enterprise to actually develop a sort of green way of doing things? Yes, it is important. Um, I believe in active involvement by government in economies because I believe that that results in a greater degree of efficiency, not a less degree of efficiency. Now, that's my personal political belief. But as far as I can see, markets are sometimes extremely wasteful. Um, duplication arises, spare capacity is literally wasted. And I'm interested in achieving this goal with the minimum loss along the way and the maximum efficiency. So the reason why a local authority needs to be involved is actually to encourage local organizations, businesses, community groups, whatever they are, to actually make sure that they are coordinating to deliver a standard which is acceptable in a fashion which is affordable to those who need it best and to make sure that nothing falls through the gaps. That requires planning. 
So a local authority has the job of talking to groups to make sure that overall there is this ability to coordinate the approach to deliver an outcome and to find the gaps and to encourage people to fill them. I mean, that, that, that raises a lot of questions, which goes for social services generally, as well as, as, as climate change issues. And that is local authorities need A, to do some social mapping. And secondly, they need to be totally open and totally inclusive with their communities. Yes. Not, local not all local authorities find that easy, but it is essential, isn't it? Well, I think it's more than essential. I think it's where local authorities are going. I mean, we are living through the most extraordinary times. We all know that. I mean, COVID has obviously challenged us in ways that a year ago we could not have possibly imagined. We're literally recording this on the day when we face the anniversary of lockdown. And what um, does this mean? I think it means that we need to rethink the way that our societies work. And one way which we have learned works, I mean, we have seen this, is that local authorities have been really quite effective at the delivery of some types of services with regard to COVID. And uh, the market has not been as effective. And I believe that local authorities are critical to the future of the way in which we manage our country. Local authorities have been downplayed during my lifetime. I mean, I can still remember when, you know, as a boy, local authorities ran all the bus services, they ran all the education services, they ran so many things. And frankly, it worked. And now it doesn't. There was a deliberate strategy from the 1980s onwards of limiting the access of local authorities to the market to afford capital, to undertake capital investment, and to the divestment of their activities. So they're now reduced with a relatively small range of activities, and therefore have had their skill base reduced. Actually, I think there are a large number of people in this country who would like to work with, for, and alongside local authorities to deliver integrated services for the benefit of society. So my belief is that actually we need to reskill local authorities. And one of the early investments that the Green New Deal talks about is this reskilling process. We are simply short of skills now. We couldn't deliver enough retrofitting of housing now if we wanted to, because we haven't got the people to skill to do it. So early stage Green New Deal is actually education more than anything else, because it has to be to deliver this transformation. But local authorities are part of that process. And we have to reimagine what local authorities mean in the communities where we work and how we want them to become more accountable more democratic and more open to consultation with the communities that they serve. Okay, I mean, that, that clearly is important. And the other thing you stressed earlier on is the development of skills and apprenticeships around yeah. green jobs in the future. Let me ask you a question that I know I think you've given some thought to, but something that many people talking about the Green New Deal don't, and that is the future of robotics and artificial intelligence. Mm -hmm. We want to create swathes of new jobs when we know that process of robotics will get rid of swathes of jobs. Does that mean we need something that sort of under, you know, sort of provides security, a blanket, like a universal basic income? Or can we create new types of jobs that aren't dependent on robotics or, or can work with it? I mean, this is a real crucial question. I don't think many people have given a lot of thought to. Well, they haven't, but let's be clear. You know, we are both grey haired. We're both of a certain age. <laughs> yeah, we are. <laughs> so let's be candid about the fact that in our lifetimes, yeah, we have seen the most phenomenal change in the nature of work. 
Um, we could not have imagined doing something like this when we were young men. It was not possible. It was the task of science fiction to imagine that two people could sit and talk on a computer. What's a computer? In your home? Um, down a line? And, you know, whole ranges of work have disappeared as a consequence. I mean, when I ran a firm of accountants in the sort of 80s and 90s, we had a significant number of people whose primary job was to type, you know, getting the day's correspondence out. And now that doesn't happen. Um, so we have already seen massive amounts of change in many areas and we have developed new jobs. We have not seen the rate of employment fall. The thing that we can do and the thing that the Green New Deal has emphasized more and more over the last decade is that yes, we are probably going to see some of the jobs involved in this become or be replaced by AI. But you can't actually use AI to fit a window. I mean, literally, this is why we talk about the need for having people on the ground doing the job locally, because there are some things you just can't do without people. But the other dimension that we've added very much is the green and social New Deal. I mean, one of the things that people accuse us of in the Green New Deal is that we're going to burn carbon to simply do the transformation. And of course, it's true. If we install more equipment, we will have to burn carbon to create that equipment. Actually, what we want to do, of course, is to end up at the point where we become zero carbon by emissions, but that requires an upfront investment to do the change. But then where is the focus? It's the social New Deal. I go back to the New Deal that inspired the term in the first place. And this is the 1930s, of course. Now, I don't pick up everything from that era because, frankly, there were some parts of the original New Deal which were racist and sexist and wholly socially unacceptable. But if we actually understand some of the things that took place then, what we were talking about was doing more for each other. And at the end of the day, the capacity that is going to be released by robotics and AI and the change in the lifestyle, which less carbon emission is going to demand of us, we are going to have to consume less. Then one of the things that we're going to be able to do more of is care for each other. Now, whether that is literally care or that is entertainment or that is the provision of art or whatever else, I don't really mind. But we are going to have to rethink what it is to consume. And we're going to consume different things in different ways in the future, which are not going to absorb as much carbon. That is part of the whole process. And so, yeah, I do think about AI, but I don't see it as a constraint or a fear. I see it as a liberation and an opportunity. Do I think we need a universal basic income? I'm not sure. We need a much better benefit system. We need a job guarantee I do think we need to be sure that we can offer people who want to work the work they want and I believe there are so many things that we could do if only we turned our mind to it but I see no limit to the future of work. Okay I mean we could have talked a lot more on this and especially the job guarantee because that's a very interesting concept which I think a lot of people are beginning to accept and yeah we've got to the end of the 30 minutes now and right. before I finish this last of the summer wine interview um, maybe <laughs> maybe I could ask you um, if you could let us know if people wanted to find out more about the new green deal or the green new deal get it the right way around the green new deal or what you do where would they go how would they find out about it? Well, I mean, I write about this regularly. In fact, actually for a decade or so, frankly, the Green New Deal virtually only lived on my blog because from 2011 to 2017, nobody paid any attention to the Green New Deal. It was only when it went to the States from the UK and came back again that everybody got excited. So there is quite a lot of material on my blog, which is Tax Research UK, or simply put Richard Murphy into Google and you'll find it comes up. Um, 
when you've written as much as I do, that's the reward. The Green New Deal group has its own website with a lot of materials on it. But if you put Green New Deal in, you will find loads of other groups as well. There's a Green New Deal UK group, there's a Labour group for Green New Deal and so on. They all add certain political dimensions. The Green New Deal group has tried to be apolitical. We have a Labour MP in it at the moment, Clive Lewis. We have a Green MP, the only Green MP. Caroline Lucas has been a member ever since it started and has been an invaluable, unsurprising member as a consequence. So we try to be a more apolitical approach, but there are lots of materials. Search Green New Deal on the web, you'll find it. Okay, well, thanks for that. And there are also beginning to be a lot of Green New Deal hubs around the country as well, which is an interesting development. I recommend one particular resource, which I really like, and it's a really good, more locally focused plan. And that is an organisation called Common Wheel. That is W-E-A-L in Scotland. Um, not Commonwealth, Commonweal, and they have a called Our Home, Common Home Plan. It's very, very good. It's the best version of the Green New Deal I think I've seen, and I didn't write it. <laughs> okay, well, uh, well, we'll put links up to that and send it round to people. Anyhow, thank you for doing this. And yeah, go to, to Richard's blog because he's written a tremendous amount of stuff and it's uh, well worth reading. Well, thank you. I think it's interesting and it raises a lot of issues that I hope will carry on as we move towards COP26 because there's going to be a really explosion of, of, of events and activities around that because it probably is the most important meeting of, of this year. So thanks, um, you know, uh, Richard, for joining us and for doing this. And it's been really interesting and a really worthwhile um, interview. So we'll, uh, we'll end this interview now.